Amen. Thank you, choir. That beautiful uh, reminder of the child who's born in Bethlehem. Uh, you know, today is a, a day of, of hope and peace and joy as we continue to celebrate this Advent season. Again, I think uh, we're so prone to rushing towards Christmas. And many of you feel like you've been rushing around, I know, because we feel like that every year. Uh, but uh, it's important to slow down to slow down and to really remember this season of Advent is about waiting. So thank you, choir. And uh, last week was just phenomenal. Uh, what an awesome time of worship and, and celebration as we had the, the orchestra here. And uh, just to celebrate all that God does during Advent uh, together as a church family. It was really a powerful uh, time. Even singing happy birthday to Carlton, I was so excited uh, that he was here. And he said that my 95th birthday will not be one that I soon forget. And so uh, I appreciate uh, Aaron making that happen with the orchestra. I just got wax all over myself. Did y'all see that when I moved the candle? <laughs> it's all over my hands. Thank you, James. I'm glad you saw it. You don't miss much, do you, James? All right, we're almost there, okay? Starting next week, I promise, I have planned 50 sermons out of the New Testament, okay? We're going to be in the New Testament, but one more week, okay? Just hang with me one more week. We're going to have another word of Old Testament prophecy, okay? Now, for those of you who are, are anxious to get to the gospel of the New Testament, for those of you who are tired of hearing about sin and judgment and oracles against the people of God, I say, great. That's, that's right where you should be. That is a highly appropriate Advent sentiment that you should be longing and ready for the grace of God to appear in the person of Jesus Christ. So hang up with us one more week. I'm gonna jump to Luke uh, next week and the week after that we'll be in Luke as well and at Christmas Eve. But until then, I wanna look at one more beautiful Old Testament prophecy. It's not one of those doom and gloom ones. It's a beautiful one. Our text for today is from the book of Zephaniah. When was the last time that you heard a sermon from Zephaniah? It's probably been a while. But it's a beautiful passage, and, and it's the lectionary text for today. So today, on this third Sunday of Advent, we join with millions, if not a billion, Christians around the world in hearing this prophecy from the prophet Zephaniah here in chapter 3. Before we celebrate the light of the world coming as a baby in a manger, we're going to once again contemplate the darkness of those who cried out, how long, O oh Lord? How long until you come into our world? And, and this is a, a text that we're gonna see that's about the hope of a future glory. And it's, it's only seven short verses. So let's stand together if you're able to in honor of God's word as we read our text for today from Zephaniah chapter three, verses 14 to 20. Hear now the words of the Lord. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among the, all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Zephaniah 3, 14 to 20. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. You know, I was thinking uh, recently uh, that when you look at modern pop music, you don't see a, a lot of duets anymore. You notice that? There's lots of, of pop songs now that bring in a guest artist or what they call a featured artist. You know, the, the, the title of the song is something by somebody featuring another artist, but it's not a true duet. They don't use that terminology of duets anymore because apparently straight up duets are too cheesy. They're, they're too corny for our times now, I guess, is, is the deal. In 2014, Rolling Stone magazine, this is Nashville, so let's talk music for a little bit, okay? They released a top 10 list of the greatest duets of all time. So Jeff, Logan, I'm looking at you industry types, okay, to see if, if you can guess some of the top duets of, of all time, according to Rolling Stone. And I'll give you a hint. All of the top three duets of all time were all from the same year. 1981, which is a great year to be born, by the way. 1981, do you know what they are? Anybody, want to take a guess? Islands in the Stream was number seven. Okay, it wasn't, Johnson, you know it? What was it? No, no, I, did, I didn't know two of these. I only knew one of these. Number one was Under Pressure by David Bowie and Queen. I knew that one. But then I never heard Stevie Nicks and Don Henley, Leather and Lace, and Stevie Nicks and Tom Petty, Stop dragging my heart around. Those are the top three duets of all time, all from 1981, apparently. And, and maybe this is, you know, anachronistic of me. You know, Jared, you don't fit in in this time. You're anachronistic, and, and I don't either. And, but I love duets. I love it. I think it's cool when, when two artists who have their unique voice and their unique gifts come together to sing together, to lift up their voices. It's special when that happens. Maybe I'm just cheesy or something, but I think it's powerful when they lend their unique voice to one another. And if you've ever sung karaoke, whether it's in your you know, basement or at, a, at some restaurant, you know it's more fun to sing with someone else, especially if it's someone that you know and someone that you love. The beauty of a choir, I'm so glad. I mean, most of my, my buddies who are pastors, a lot of them are church planners, and they don't, they're not blessed with a choir like we are. And the beauty of a choir is that each individual voice comes together to form something greater than just one person or any one individual. What we see in these final verses of Zephaniah is a lot of singing. There's a lot of commands to sing, 
And, and what we're going to see is God's people who sing. But then in verse 17, we see the author of all music, the creator of all creativity, join in the song that he himself wrote in the first place. It's so cool. Um, so I'm calling this sermon the ultimate duet, singing along with the Lord, that we get to sing along with the Lord. The Lord actually joins in the song that we're singing. And one day we're going to be a part of the greatest duet of all time that will make even Stevie Nicks and whoever she's singing with, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, all that is going to pass away and we're going to exceed all of it. The duo of God's people plus the Lord, their God himself, will be a song so powerful that it makes all things new once again. It can only take place in the greatest venue of all time, the new heaven and the new earth. So let's dig in with the first two verses. The point number one on your outline is that we sing because God is with us. We sing because God is with us. That's an Advent theme, isn't it? God is with us. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. You're up first in the duet. Go, God's people. He's talking to the people of Jerusalem, his holy people. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He is with you. You shall never again fear evil. You know, let's talk about Zephaniah for a minute. Uh, if you've ever read the Bible through, maybe you've, you've read Zephaniah. Uh, we don't know a lot about who this guy was, but we know what his message is. Starting in verse 7 of chapter 1 through the end of the book, it's all about the day of the Lord. This day of, of judgment, this kind of climactic moment in the story of God. Zephaniah has a word for the people of Judah. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And we say, yeah, 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 okay, God came to earth as a baby in a manger and fulfilled all that. I know that story, but that's not what Zephaniah is talking about. Zephaniah is pointing even past the manger, even past the cross, even past the empty tomb to the second advent. He's talking about that great reckoning. He's talking about the second advent where those who have lived in open rebellion against God are going to be judged and it will not be pretty. Look at the first two verses of Zephaniah. I told you we weren't going to read any doom and gloom, but we're going to do a little doom and gloom real quick, okay? Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Look at how Zephaniah starts out. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, that may or may not be the good king. We think it was. In the days of Josiah, he was a good king, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now look at how he starts. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'm going to utterly sweep away everything. I'm sick of it, is what God's saying. His opening line is, there's no like setup. He's just like, I'm going to destroy it all. <laughs> That's how Zephaniah starts the message that the Lord has given him. And here's the thing. He makes it clear. It's not just the pagan 
nations that are in you know, blatant rebellion against God that are gonna be swept away, God's own people, the, the sad reality is that God's own people are also in rebellion against him. You know, it's, it, it's true that so many people who claim to know God and to be part of God's family don't really know him at all. Whether they realize it or not, they too are living against the ways of the Lord. Look at what the Lord says to Jerusalem in verse one of chapter three in Zephaniah. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. He's talking about Jerusalem. Not just Babylon, not just all these pagan places, but Jerusalem itself. Instead of being a beacon of hope and, and goodness, that tov word in Hebrew that I love so much, instead of being a place of shalom, of peace and prosperity, Jerusalem has just become like the pagan cities around them, exploiting the poor, taking advantage of people, oppressing the weak, placing strict religious burdens, the religious elite, the religious rulers, who put these ritualistic burdens on the people of God so that the elite could feel good about themselves. And the rest of the people were just going through empty rituals while Jesus said to all of them what he says to the Pharisees, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. If God's people in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas of Judah really heard and really understood what Zephaniah was saying, they would be on their face weeping. They'd be broken. They would be contrite and repentant. And the only thing that they would expect in repayment for their sins is punishment. But Zephaniah looks past all the short-term consequences of sin. And there are consequences to sin. But here in this final section of his message, he points to the long-term reality of what God is doing. Yes, the day of the Lord will be terrifying to those who are in rebellion to him. Yes, it will be a, a, a terrifying day in many ways, but ultimately God comes into our world again to transform it and to, to put an end to all that is wrong with it and to eventually make it into a new creation once again. The work that God started 2,000 years ago through Jesus Christ will be brought to completion on that day. And here in verse 14, Zephaniah says, no, 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 don't panic, okay? The day of the Lord is ultimately good. God's gonna come into our world and Fix it. He's going to fix it utterly and completely. So sing. So rejoice. Exult. I love how a scholar, African scholar, Palmer Robertson puts it in his commentary. He says, by piling up every available expression for joy, the prophet leaps across the veil of gloom into the realm of grace beyond devastation the realm of grace beyond devastation. Many of you have experienced that, that realm on a micro level already in this life. 
I know many of you who've gone through unbelievable loss, through unbelievable pain, and you thought your life was over. You thought you'd never experience joy again. And yet, while, while many of you carry that, that wound with you still as part of your story, you found that there is God's gracious life on the other side. You, you may carry that wound, but you found there is grace that is sufficient. How is that possible? How can there be life on the other side of such immense tragedy? Well, it's not humanly possible. It's only possible because of divine grace. God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor that he shows us because he loves us. It's that love and mercy that comes to us in subtle and surprising ways and eventually takes root in the wells of our souls. It springs up. Again, that may sound like preacher talk and that may sound great, but how do we know that what I'm saying is true? How do we know that this is going to come true? What guarantee do we have of the promise of grace? Well, how do we know that the end is going to be good? How do we know that love gets the last word, not pain or death? We can know these things because of Advent. It's right there in verse 15. The Lord is in our midst. Emmanuel, right? That's a Christmas word. You know what it means if you're a church type. It means God with us. God with us. 1 Corinthians 1.20, one of my favorite verses, all the promises of God find their yes in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We sing because God is with us. We sing because of all those reasons in verse 15, because God has taken away the judgments that were rightfully ours, the penalty for sin. He's cleared away our enemies, all the things that have assailed us for, for years. Sickness, pain, death, grief, addiction, loneliness, depression, anxiety, fear. God clears away those things that have assailed us in the end. Yet, not yet, but in the end, they will be taken away. And yes, we face terrible things in this life, but we don't have to fear the evil that is in them. The evil in them can't touch us now because God is with us and his love will win. That was just two verses, okay? We haven't even gotten to the best part yet. Point number two is about God's turn in the duet. God sings because he loves us. That may sound like Sunday school a little bit. God loves us, but I want to really contemplate what that means today. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. Again, there's that Advent theme. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Who wants to hear God sing loud? I do. <laughs> One commentary says that Zephaniah 3.17 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. 
Think about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In our, you know, narcissistic and transactional view of the gospel, we tend to make John 3.16 about us. You know, John 3.16 means I can go to heaven when I die. But it's so much more than that. It's John 3.16, the subject of John 3.16 is God. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That kind of sacrificial love of a good, good father that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish. God in his amazing love for his creation is the subject of John 3.16. And that kind of love is not a wimpy, schoolboy, pop music kind of love. We're talking about the love of God, the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent creator of the universe. He is himself love. And the way he loves is with might. It's power. It's effectual love. It says he's mighty to save. That's how he loves. And the Hebrew word that, that's used here for mighty one is usually translated as hero or, or mighty warrior. It, it, it conjures up this idea of a, a, a mighty warrior who defeats his enemies and overcomes them. And the mighty hero is not some distant Hope, he's here, he is with us, he is in our midst now with power to change our lives and the world in which we live. We don't have to fear him though, like we would a huge armored warrior. What we see in, in verse 17 at the end is a poem of affection that is so tender and so overwhelmingly loving that it just blows our minds. My friend uh, and, and Bible teacher, Fran Shaka, he was leading a men's Bible study, and he said, look, guys, the, the great need in our world is for men who are both tough and tender. Tough and tender. And he, he pointed to the example of Jesus, the one who, beaten and bloodied, carried his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem, is also the same one who said, let the little children come to me. He is both the lion and the lamb. He is tough and tender. He's the son of a blue-collar carpenter, but he weeps with his friends when their brother dies in Bethany. Our God is the ultimate example of this. He's almighty God, and yet he breaks out in a song. He's joyful with delight, all because of you. That's how much he loves you. In our culture of you know, individualism, I, I would think this message would resonate so well. You are, as Tim Keller says, you're more known, you're more accepted, you're more seen, to use modern terminology. You're, you're more deeply, deeply known than you could ever imagine. At the same time, you're more loved and accepted and welcomed than you ever dreamed possible. That's an important thing to note, too, that, that while the, the you in this verse definitely applies to each one of you, it's, it's, it's a plural pronoun. God loves his people, those who've been called out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. But he doesn't love this people, this elect of God. He doesn't love them because they've earned it. He, he doesn't love them because they're good people. He loves them because that's 
who he is. It's his essence. The Bible says that God is agape love, this never-ending, overflowing gift love that just gives and gives and gives. Now, I know some of you think, well, yeah, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not part of the elect. God doesn't really love me like that, not after all I've done. How could he? I know that some of you think that because some of you have told me that. And let me just say that there's an invitation here that's for everyone. And that God's desire is for everyone to know this love. Look at just a few verses prior. In, in, in verse uh, 9 of this beautiful chapter, God says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. That's just eight verses prior in verse 9. Maybe today you just need to accept that invitation to join in the duet. When Morgan and I were trying to think of uh, what verse to choose, we, we picked a life verse for all of our kids. And, you know, I've asked Cam and McKenna to pick a verse for Numa. We're going to dedicate Numa soon. And we were contemplating what verse of Scripture should be May, our daughter, our only daughter. What should be her, her life verse? What do we want her to know deep down in her soul from Scripture when times are tough, what do we want to be the verse that she comes back to time and time again when she feels hurt, when she feels abandoned? We want her to remember above all that the Lord is near to her, that he's able to save her, and that he rejoices over her because he actually likes her. Not only does God love you, but he likes you. He thinks you're great. He wants to hang out with you. That's what we want her to know. We want her to know that he can quiet her restless soul with his never-ending love and that he can't help himself but break into a beautiful song over her with this loud voice because he loves her that much. When May was about three, she had this verse memorized. We tried to find a video of her saying it, and that video, I promise, would be better than any sermon I probably ever have preached or will preach, but we couldn't find it, so you just have to imagine it. That brings us to our last point. Our last point, God comes to take us home. God comes at the, the second advent to, to establish a new place for us to dwell. That's why this is such a rich advent text, right? Look at verses 18 to 20 again. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, who long for the party, that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise, beauty for ashes, right? Renown in all the earth. And that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. You're going to see it happen, how I gather you into this new final dwelling place. I love the story of the prodigal son. I, I can't stop thinking about it. It just comes up in my mind all the time. I think we often miss the point. There's several points, but 
I think we miss some of the main points of this beautiful parable that Jesus tells. A lot of times we hear that passage taught with emphasis on the prodigal and his need to come home. That's the application. Prodigals come home. But as Tim Keller points out, the one who is truly extravagant, the one who is truly reckless in his abandonment of reason, was God. God was the prodigal one. The word prodigal means to recklessly and extravagantly spend. And that's what God did. That's what God did. Once again, God is the focus of the story. And then there's the older brother. And if we're honest, he's the one that I relate most to, and probably a lot of you religious types. He did what he was supposed to. He stayed home and he worked for his dad, but he was miserable and resentful. He didn't really love his dad. And when the younger brother finally came home, the older brother wouldn't even go into the party, the most amazing party, the most extravagant party that's ever been thrown. You know, Tony Campolo says, the kingdom of God is a party. And the father comes out to find the older son and says, why won't you come in and party with us? We're having a blast in there. Everybody's having fun. He says, no, you never even gave me a goat. He's resentful, he's bitter. So many people are missing out on the party. They're caught up in their own ideas of, of how to be good people and their own ideas of what the good life, of what the party actually is, and they end up missing the real party completely. In the parable, the father, again, has to come and invite us in and say, don't miss the party. In verse 18 here, God's saying that just like that older son, don't miss the party. Those of you that long for what's truly good, I know you've lived in exile for so long, I know you've gone through a lot, but I'm preparing a party for you. And those who have longed for the real party, get ready. Get ready, because it's coming. On the day of the Lord, the weak and the marginalized receive a special invitation, a special place of honor from the Lord himself. Justice is a key component of Advent. We know that. Remember what Isaiah says in, in, in Isaiah 11, verse 1. He says, There shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall, shall bear fruit. Then skip to verse 4. He says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Remember, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He comes to establish justice, to make things right. People who've been oppressed, people who've been ignored, pushed aside, they're now honored. All those men at Lois DeBerry, they're going to be in places of honor, those who are in the family of Jesus. You know, Jim Askew, the first time he took me out to the prison, he told me as we were leaving, Nathan, these men have been ignored and rejected, not only by society, but many by their own families too. And they have no dignity. They're treated as animals. And we come to restore that dignity, to teach them the truth of who they are in Jesus Christ. I told them that I'd give them that special shout out, so there you go. Today, again, some of our ladies lit the, the pink candle of joy. Thank you, uh, ladies, for, for doing that. We, if you're watching today online or if you're struggling today, just know that the Lord is coming back. I know a lot of you haven't felt joy in a long time. Let me suggest some karaoke. <laughs> Not literal karaoke. You can do that. That's fine if that's your thing. 
But what I'm talking about is greater than any karaoke. I'm talking about a duet with the living God. I'm talking about getting on the same page and singing the same lines that the living God sings. To obey the command to lift up your voice and, and exult because no matter what you're going through, God is gonna fix it and make it new. And when you stand up to sing, you don't, you don't sing nervously by yourself. The Lord God grabs his mic and joins you and joins in that song. He's with us, he loves us, and he's coming again to bring us home once and for all. Will you let that truth sink into your heart today and live with the confidence and the hope and the peace and the joy of Advent. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that not only did you fulfill these promises by coming to earth as a baby in a manger, but that you're coming again as a mighty warrior. You're coming again to finish the work of making all things new once and for all. God, I thank you that you're with us now through the Holy Spirit that you sent at Pentecost, that we have your Holy Spirit among us now, that even in this moment, you are here with us in your might and in your power to change us and transform us right now, to bring dead people to life right now, to break bonds of addiction right now, to break bonds of codependency right now, to lift spirits and to enlighten minds right now. God, I pray that you would heal the sick. I pray that you would uh, feed the hungry. I pray that you would move in power and that all the praise and glory would go to you. Help us to live into the reality of Advent here and now. May the hope and the peace and the joy that are ours through Jesus Christ our Lord be evident in our lives to everyone. Forgive us, O oh God, for wallowing in self-pity. Forgive us for, as our small group this morning taught, uh, for, for being lukewarm and, and, and tepid water and neither hot nor cold. God, I pray that we would learn to, to live with the warmth of the Spirit overflowing out of us into every single person that we meet, every divine appointment, whether we are alone or with someone else. God, I pray that your peace that passes understanding would take such root in our hearts because we know that you've come once and that you're coming again. We thank you for this beautiful season of Advent. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted that first free gift of grace that God gives you. That he offers to remove your sins, just as we read in verse 15, how God clears the judgments that are against you. He can't do that. He cannot do that and be a just God unless he pours out his wrath on sin upon the perfect spotless lamb, your substitute. Jesus Christ, who died a substitutionary, atoning death on a cross, and then rose again, conquering death forever so that we can live victoriously and not have to live in fear of evil, just as our text said for today. If you've never experienced that for the first time, there's no better time to do so than right now. God promises to raise you up into a whole new kind of life. That's a miracle 
just as important as the miracle of Jesus coming to earth the first time or the second time. If you are struggling with just, you haven't had joy in a long time, then I would encourage you to, to maybe seek professional help. I'm a big fan of, of, of counseling and I have some names I can give you in my drawer. I have cards that I refer people to, of people who've done this thing and who know how to do this uh, better than I do and who are, are believers and who understand how the Holy Spirit partners with us in getting better physically, mentally, spiritually. Not so that we can be better people, but so that we can play our part more effectively in what God is doing in this world. Maybe you've never been baptized and you say, man, I wanna start 2022 off right. And I wanna be immersed in believer's baptism to represent what's happened in my heart that I've gone from death to life. Whatever it is that you need to do, maybe you just wanna come pray at the altar. Maybe you've just been so broken over this last year or two over COVID or over whatever uh, you know, vaccines, arguments, or whatever that you've seen uh, in the politics or media, or maybe because of the storms last night just have you down and you need to experience the joy of the Lord. Whatever it is that you need to do in this time, let's stand and sing our hymn of response. I'll be down front if you wanna talk.